For so many people, 2020 was a year that brought nothing but bad news. It made the victory of our election system this fall revelatory. At the outset, the obstacles seemed insurmountable. From a global pandemic to concerns over disenfranchisement, voter fraud, and outside influence, the U.S. election system was under attack. What actually happened was incredible and showed our country's true grit. The United States had the highest voter turnout since 1908. This is Voting Now, Turning Rights into Reality, a podcast series from the Oregon chapter of the Federal Bar Association in collaboration with the Oregon Historical Society. Welcome to our new season, where we unpack the 2020 election, talk about the next generation of voices, and discuss the heroes of our past. Our guest today is Myrna Perez, the director of the Brennan Center's Voting Rights and Elections Program. Myrna talks with us about what we accomplished in the 2020 election. We discuss what we did, what we learned, and what comes next. Myrna is the author of several nationally recognized reports and articles. She has testified before Congress and several state legislatures on a variety of voting rights related issues and is a lecturer in law at Columbia Law School. So with respect to what we did, can you tell me what you and the Brennan Center observed in this election cycle that was new and different? We saw 35 states make sizable changes to their election policy to account for the fact that we were in a once in a century pandemic. Much of them came in the area of vote by mail. So for example, we saw a number of states expand who was allowed to vote by mail such that all but just a small number would permit everyone who had fear of COVID or everybody, period, would be able to vote by mail. We also saw a number of states increasing accessibility, like, for example, offering to provide postage for the first time to people who needed to vote by mail. We also saw a number of states sending mail ballot applications to everybody. So I think we saw a number of changes like that in the vote by mail context. We also saw a number in the early voting context where uh, people expanded access to early voting by increasing days or increasing hours. And that was also super exciting. Um, We also saw a number of states change the rules by which they count votes by letting ballots that were timely mailed but may have arrived a day or so after the election because of a glitch in the post office or something like that, them counting. And we saw uh, states changing their rules so that if a voter made a technical mistake, they would be allowed to cast ballots that would count by giving them an opportunity to fix what they did. So we should feel really good about this as voters. We did a lot. And what was the effect on those reforms on voters in your observation? I mean, I I think it's really hard to disentangle how one particular intervention is going to matter to the whole outcome. But what we do know is it shouldn't be thought of as an on-off switch, but rather a sliding scale. Like the more that you do, the more people you're bringing in and the less that you do, the less people you're bringing in. And especially when all these these pro-voter reforms can be cumulative in nature, 
where this thing makes it easier for these people, this one makes it easier for that people. And I think that's what we saw. I think we saw states expanding vote by mail, which helped the people that needed to vote by mail. And I think we saw states expanding early voting, which help the people that need to vote in person. So uh, those kinds of reforms together increase the total number of people who can be voting. Did you still see efforts to suppress the vote in this election? Oh, absolutely. We saw massive advancements in access. We also saw very real voter suppression. And we saw some states being extraordinarily stingy and resisting at every step many, many common sense reforms. I mean, I've been thinking of the state of Texas, which went after election administrators across the state because they wanted to mail people ballot applications or because they wanted to make sure voters knew that certifying that you had a disability with respect to COVID was sufficient and didn't demand doctor's notes and the like. We certainly saw a good deal of voter suppression, but um, we also saw a lot to be excited about. So part of what our task is to applaud the reforms that were helpful and push back on the restrictions. I mean, we're, we're speaking now on, on these ideas of what we learned about this election. What should we be taking away in terms of the common denominator to be expected in a national election process? Well, I mean, I think there were a lot of things that we learned. I mean, with respect to the common denominator, I think um, we learned that some states just do more for their voters than other states. And the states that don't do very much are really resistant to making reforms. Um, and I hope is that voters will make it clear to their electeds uh, they want election administration and good election administration to be a nonpartisan issue. Um, I think some other important things that we learned there are lots of reforms that took place because new people expected to be disenfranchised. I mean, communities of color have had to deal with voter suppression and having barriers to the ballot box since this country was founded. And this pandemic represented an instance in which white voters and middle-class voters and wealthy voters might have had more barriers to the ballot box than what they were used to because coronavirus. So because of that, we started seeing people be at risk of disenfranchisement that usually aren't. And I think that kind of woke people up. Whoa, we have a lot of cracks in our system that aren't working for people and they're not working now. And so they demanded reform. And my hope is that people start remembering like how it feels when you might have a harder time to vote and to make sure that everybody gets lifted up. We're not a democracy for most of us. We're a democracy for all of us. And that means that our country is only going to be as strong as we are representative. And if we don't have all of the experiences and all of the voices in our very diverse country, we're not going to be able to fix the problems we're facing right now. I think it inserted some empathy into the general population about voter disenfranchisement. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not so sure as much as it is empathy, but realizing that a barrier to the ballot box is a barrier to the ballot box and that many of us needed to change how we, we voted. But in other years, 
It could be foreign cyber criminals attacking our infrastructure or the weather that impedes some people from voting and some people not and makes it better for us to have a focused way of voting that provides less strain on other folks that don't have any options. And so for that reason, we need to sit and look around and make preparations for like what could go wrong and who would that leave out and to make sure that we have enough risk diversification built into the systems. On those states where you saw states investing in reforms, making sure that people had time to receive a mail-in ballot, place their mail-in ballot, exercise their right to vote through different mechanisms, achieving safety. Did the Brennan Center take a look at the numbers of voter turnouts to see if the degree of voter reform tracked with higher voter turnout? That's a really complicated issue because it's often not just one reform and it's really hard to disentangle from other things like um, enthusiasm for the candidates, who else was down ballot, what the culture of voting and participation in the community was beforehand. Um, but what I, what again, what I do think we can see is that um, we had a lot of changes to make it easier for people to vote. We had a lot of enthusiasm and excitement. And given where we were in March and what we saw in the primaries, I think the election that happened was so much smoother than many of us had feared that it would be, you know, back in August. And I think it's only because everybody stepped up where the politicians failed us. Everybody contributed where the politicians did nothing. I mean, your listeners should remember that we had been speaking as an advocacy community in one voice to Congress saying that we needed another $4 billion to go to help pull off this election. And it didn't happen. Uh, it didn't happen. And so localities filling in the breach, being creative about how to use their resources. You had the private sector stepping in. You had people contributing their own labor to do it. I mean, the American public really deserves a lot of credit and the politicians deserve a lot, deserve a lot of critique for the way that this election happened. Um, what role does the, the VRA, the Voting Rights Act, play in this election cycle and moving forward in protecting individuals' right to vote. It's something that has been curtailed by the Supreme Court in recent history. And I'm wondering, is that a legislative tool that folks are using to secure their right to vote? So the Voting Rights Act, its strongest, was the most successful piece of civil rights legislation this country has ever known. Um, it has gotten weakened significantly, as you mentioned, by the Supreme Court, and there's an opportunity to restore it to its full strength. There is, in fact, a, a bill in Congress that passed the House. It has been renamed the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. That would do a lot to uh, give the Voting Rights Act the teeth that it once had. So my hope is that your audience members will pressure their members of Congress to get it through this year. What are the key components of that act? It restores a piece that was mothballed by the Supreme Court called preclearance, which means that if you are a jurisdiction that has a history of racial discrimination in voting, you have to demonstrate in advance that an election change that you want to make isn't going to make minority voters worse off or wasn't done to try and make minority voters worse off. And that that practice, what we call preclearance, is still on the books, but nobody can use it because the Supreme Court 
said that the the formula that Congress used for deciding who has to abide by preclearance was out of date. So the Voting Rights Act, the biggest thing that it does is it comes up with a new formula um, to see which states and localities have to go through the preclearance process that I just described. But it does other things, like it identifies those practices that have a particularly egregious racial history. So for example, places that switch to at-large elections, for example, that have been pretty disrupted because of the racial impact that those have had, um, says that if you want to, if you want to make that switch, you also need to demonstrate change is not going to make minority voters worse off. So that's the big part of it. It also provides more voters education and notice. It restores the federal monitoring program. It does a lot of really good things. I hope your your listeners support it. And what about the pending Supreme Court cases that are? going to be addressing voting rights issues, um, like the cases coming out of Arizona going to the Supreme Court this session? Well, I mean, I certainly think that we need to uh, be mindful of the fact that the court is only one way to uh, try and protect the right to vote. We um, also need to be making a case to voters uh, that the right to vote is important so that they can put pressure on our legislators to make sure that we have really strong laws that uh, protect the right to vote. Um, there's certainly a number of cases that are percolating that potentially could weaken protections for the right to vote. And so I think that that means just watching to see what the various courts do on things and also, again, making sure that we're making the public case for strong voting. It does underscore the need to make sure that there's appropriate legislation in place. Um, coming back to the issue of budgets, um, not only is the, a budget needed, I would imagine, to fund enforcement action, but a budget is needed to actually fund uh, the electoral process, making sure that there are uh, sufficient resources to count, to administer and count the vote. Um, what what efforts are underway um, on making sure that the, the budget is in place and what can we do as listeners to support those efforts? Well, when Congress reconvenes, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of folks pressing Congress to set minimum standards so that each state and locality uh, provides a, a floor um, for the kinds of services and access that they have. Um, you know, some of those bills will come with money to do that. Um, there's likely also to be omnibus bills that do the same. But, um, you know, I, I think elections are too important to leave to one set of politicians. Like all of our politicians need to know that we care about our right to vote and that our elections are funded appropriately. And the pressure needs to go in multiple directions. And we should be saying in one voice in every way that we care about our elections and we want to make sure people have smooth election day experience. So this is a call to action to write your senator, your representative, um, to ask them to support those efforts that are going to fully fund our democracy. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not just funding. It's like we need to have an attitude where we live out what I think most of us believe, which is our democracy works best when it includes all of us. I believe that people believe that. And if they believe that, then that means there's some common sense policies that we need to have in place to do that, which you know include minimum funding and include floors, but also include things like making sure that voters have the information and education that they need so that they're fully informed. So that's civics education and your Grade schools. 
Well, civics education, but also uh, information about elections. Like, I can't tell you how many times we've heard voters not know when the last day to register was or whether or not they were allowed to register or what the policies were for registering if you moved or if you were homeless. True. One of the other variables that we had present in Oregon this year was what to do if your community has been burned down by a wildfire, you know, and trying to figure out how to triage and pivot and, and make sure that your vote gets counted and you receive your ballot in time, um, despite being displaced. Um, and those are issues, like you said earlier, you know, are just different in every election cycle and different every year. And if it's not one thing, it's another. And so it's just important to make sure that there's um, a, a good flow of information and everyone's getting it. Um, Mirna, we're out of time. What, um, what did I fail to ask you that you think is one of the most important issues that we didn't get to, but that voters need to hear about elections this year and going forward and protecting our democracy? I think people need to remember that they need to be part of the solution. Um, there is zero question that there is much that needs to be done to improving our elections to make sure that every eligible American is able to participate in a, you know, in a free and fair way. Um, but there requires some responsibility when we're providing that critique. And so we need to be very skeptical of claims of politicians, especially politicians who lose, that the system is broken. It cannot be that there's only two options, either the candidate I won lost or the whole thing was rigged, right? Like not enough people agree with you. Um, and we need to have a way to resolve our political differences peacefully. We need to have um, a set of norms for transferring power. Um, we need to have a set of rules and acceptance when things don't go the way that we'd hoped they go. And even when we're profoundly disappointed in what our neighbors did and what our neighbors want. And I think you can be a person that offers a lot of critiques on the way the system needs to improve and the ways in which it is failing some voters. And that is different than saying that we can't count on its outcome. Um, and that is a role for all of us. Like it's a role for all of us to be standing up for democracy, to be standing up for the idea of elections being the way we resolve our political differences. And that we are holding all of our politicians and our election administrators accountable for building the best election system that we can. And this moment is definitely calling for us to stand up for that. Um, so thanks, Mirna. I do appreciate your time. It's been absolutely my pleasure to talk with you and uh, keep up the good fight. This has been an episode of Voting Now, Turning Rights into Reality, a new podcast series from the Oregon chapter of the Federal Bar Association in collaboration with the Oregon Historical Society. We focus on current and historical barriers to voting. Hit subscribe to check out our episodes and visit our website, voting-now.com. Celia Howes is the lead host and executive producer. Frayne Masters is our creative director. Miranda Schaefer, our producer. And Gabriel Granillo is our senior editor. Special thanks to Fiona McCann.